Now, on Book TV's Afterwards, New York Times Magazine contributor Thomas Chatterton Williams looks at race and identity. He's interviewed by author and New York Times columnist Kwame Anthony Appiah. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. So they've introduced us and they've uh, told them who we are, so we can just start talking about your uh, wonderful new book. And I think the best way to do that is to talk about uh, its author because it's a book that makes an argument that depends on the life of the author, and so we need to know a little bit about who you are. I'm sure lots of people do already, but just in case, let's talk a bit about that. And anyway, you might want to talk about how you think about your own life. So let's start with, uh, you grew up in New Jersey. That's right. And you grew up, uh, how did your parents get to New Jersey, and who were they? So I'm the son of a, of a black man from the segregated South. Uh, my father is uh, 82 years old. He was born in 1937 in Longview, Texas, and raised in Galveston um, under segregation, you know, under Jim Crow. Um, and he moved to the West as soon as he could and was running war on poverty programs under Lyndon Johnson's Great Society initiative. And he met my mother, who's nine years his junior, uh, in San Diego, where he was heading up uh, warm poverty program, and she was fresh out of college, and uh, she is the daughter of evangelical Christians. Her father was a minister, and he was very much a part of this mainstream American society that was um, certainly opposed to interracial marriage uh, in the late 1960s, early 1970s. So, so you didn't use the word white about him, but he was... Yeah, he's he was white. white. <laughs> <laughs> I should specify that. My mother is white. Yes, uh, right. And um, he, was, he, was, he was really unhappy when my parents got together. And um, so they eventually moved up to Oregon and Washington State and then to Denver. And my father's jobs kept taking them east um, and until 1981 when I was born in New Jersey. Okay. So, um, and the job in New Jersey, what was, what was, what was he doing? Still the so, same sort of thing? By the time that I was born, my father was... Um, he was running SAT preparation um, lessons. He was, he was tutoring students who would come to the house and study privately with him for the SAT, the GRE, the LSAT, within subjects, uh, okay. math and science. And he was really, that's how he was supporting the family. And so my brother and I became kind of like captive live-in students in this, <laughs> in this house that was just very small, a very modest one-story ranch house, but it was packed from wall to wall with books. He had about 15,000 books. And so um, we studied with him on the weekends and uh, in the evenings and through our summer breaks. Uh, and that's basically what made up um, uh, for the kind of mediocre um, interparochial Catholic schools that we were going Why did you go to Catholic school? Um, for a variety of reasons. I think in, in my father kind of believed that the discipline would be better there, though it, <laughs> though it really wasn't. Oh. Um, I think that he wanted to get us out of our neighborhood. We lived in a um, kind of informally segregated um, part of New Jersey where there was a white side of town and a black side of town. What's the town? Um, I grew up in Fanwood, New Jersey. Fanwood. And we, so as, as a kind of silent protest against uh, the realtor's attempts to steer us um, to the black pocket, we lived on the white side of town. Um, and that came with some, in the 1980s and 90s, that came with some some racial dynamics that my father wanted to get us out of. So we went to a Catholic school a couple towns over. And, um, but, but not, um, as it were, in order to become Catholics? Not at all. In fact, yeah, I should, <laughs> my, my father's an atheist and my mother is a, a, a Protestant. Um, 
And so when the school would go to mass, my brother and I would, would sit back and we would read our books. And um, that was kind of an early experience of, of standing apart from, you from the, group. the book. So um, how, um, was it just you two? I mean, was it, was, yeah. it, was it a very significant difference from all the others to be just the two of you? Yeah, it was just us two. No one else, uh, uh, no one else had not a single wow. other person uh, abstained from going to Mass. Right. And but is that because they were mostly from Catholic families? Most were. You know, I wasn't even aware of meeting um, children of other faiths outside of Christianity until I got to, to Georgetown in 1999. So you went to a Catholic college. I went, and then ended, up going to, ended up going to a Jesuit school. Jesuit school. Yeah. In retrospect, uh, I realized it wasn't until I got to grad school at NYU that I had been outside of Catholic education. At, at, at all. Yeah. Um, and yeah, how did it go? What did, I mean, you said it wasn't the, the... It sounds as though you think you got the best part of your education at home, which Absolutely, may, may be yeah. true of a lot of people. But yeah. But what, what happened in the school, it seemed? I mean, first of all, what's yeah. the, I mean, since we're going to be talking about race, sure. um, what's the composition of yeah. the school population? So my, my mother is technically a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but she's not um, what people think of when they think of that uh, as um, connoting some type of social elite. She, right. she's, her faith is Protestant, and she's um, derived from Anglo-Saxon stock, but that's about as far as that goes. So... Um, that was my experience with that kind of whiteness, and I grew up in New Jersey around what my parents would refer to as ethnic whites, you know. Uh, Polish kids, Italian kids, Irish kids, um, Greek kids, and so that was my experience with whiteness, uh, even Portuguese and Spanish uh, kids, so they tended to be Catholic. Um, they tended, once I got to college, I realized they tended not to be at all um, uh, this kind of elite white. Right. Uh, they were not college-bound. Many of them were Many not. Of them. Many yeah. of them were not. Yeah. And these are the kids in your neighborhood, but also the kids in your school. That's right. So is it, uh, what, what percentage of the, of the kids in your school would have been black? So I, in my, up until high school, um, I was one of a handful of black students and um, was really aware that um, I was kind of, I could interpret and perform my racial identity as I kind of wanted to because there wasn't much uh, <laughs> basis of judging. Okay. Um, by the time I got to high school, and it was a deliberate choice, I chose to go to a school that was much more black and Latino, about probably and about you, half. You were offered a choice. Your, yeah, your my father, father offered me a choice. I could have gone to a pretty good um, all-boys Catholic school that would have been pretty white and had a very good basketball team, and I was obsessed with basketball. But I very much wanted to be in a... In a, in a, in a social milieu with, 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 black, with black girls to date. And so I chose to go to a, a, a school that was inferior in terms of academics and in terms of basketball, but I, I, I believed that I was good enough at basketball to make up for that, and I knew that my father was going to be making me study with him no matter what, so I didn't really worry about my SAT um, prep. But, so I ended up going to a school that was, was heavily black and Latino as well as ethnic white. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, but, and not Catholic. It was Catholic. It was Catholic. It was Catholic. Okay, so yeah. all the options are Catholic. All the options were still Catholic. <laughs> so that must have been something about the yeah. neighborhood and the town. Um, and you, how serious were you about your basketball? I mean, I was pretty serious um, until there was a conflict with uh, potentially leaving the school and leaving my high school girlfriend behind to go and play somewhere else. I, I was serious enough that I had an, I, I tried out a few times with St. Anthony's in Jersey yeah. City oh. under Bobby Hurley and. The, the, the tryouts went well, and he invited me to... I could have transferred schools there mm. and tried my luck at being on the team um, when I was 15, 16. But at the last moment, I decided I couldn't... I, I didn't have 
a desire to leave uh, this girl that I was madly in love with mm -hmm. that kind of was enormously influential in my kind of um, racial self-conception as well as my kind of... Right, so you talk about that in the book. Tell us a yeah. bit about what that means because in a way your experience of blackness in the household is, is let's say, eccentric, unusual, yeah. but, but she was your kind of access to what you might call normal blackness. Yeah, so part of what I, I realized in retrospect was different about my family was that my father was fleeing the segregated South in many ways, uh, a, a Texas um, upbringing that uh, caused some pain. Um, and my mother was um, fleeing a kind of stifling um, racism uh, coming from her own father, uh, and they were searching to create their own family on their own terms. And so my brother and I were raised outside of the context of um, extended family members on either our black or white side. Oh. So, so our, our house was really, our, our, we were a foursome unto ourselves. And I didn't realize how different that was from all of my friends until I became an adult, until I became a parent. And I saw, um, for example, how many cousins my children have and, and how, how important extended family is to them. So my racial identity was really kind of always... Um, coming directly from my father, but also from my mother's... Um, my mother agreed with his idea yeah. that a drop of black blood makes a person black. My mother agreed that we were a black household. So my brother and I grew up with a white mom and a black dad, but it wasn't that complicated a question for us. We were black. The white kids we knew didn't think we were white, and the black kids basically were used to black people looking all kinds of ways. So mm -hmm. I had a kind of um, um, uh, uncomplicated sense of myself as black, but I realized that depending on how I behaved, how I dressed, how I comported myself, my blackness could, my, others could perceive uh, a more authentic or a less authentic mm -hmm. uh, racial identity. And so I kind of threw myself into the idea that um, the girl I was with um, kind of was also the fulcrum upon which I, I hoisted up my sense of myself. So who was she? So <laughs> she's a girl I refer to as Stacy in both of the memoirs. Um, she was a year younger than me. Um, she was actually from a household that was pretty middle class, but she was in the neighboring black town of Plainfield, which was a slightly less affluent town. Um, and she lived around a more of an inner city experience, even though she was not directly in that. And um, she kind of exuded a kind of um, intoxicating cool that I... <laughs> You know, that I, that, that it was shocking to me. I mean, the, here was a girl that um, didn't ever take the SAT test, wasn't concerned about it. It wasn't, no one asked her to, no one told her to. You know, she, some, she cut school, she, 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 she seemed extraordinarily free and, um, and just not. What um, was her life plan? What was she? Saying? She didn't have one. She didn't have one. She didn't, have she didn't one. need one. She needed one. She thought. She needed one, but yeah. she didn't have one. And there was a spell when she was, when I was a senior and she was a junior. My father took her aside and tried to prepare her on his own for free for the SATs, and, she, and, and, and he, he was astounded. I mean, he, I think she was one of the first uh, kids he ever worked with where he just couldn't reach her. She just didn't care. Didn't care. Yeah. Um, oh. I think she exuded what um, Orlando Patterson might call like a cool pose culture. You know, she, right. she exemplified that. Right. And that was uh, attractive. At the time, it was really attractive to me. It was very exotic to me. It was very different from... She, she was completely outside of the context I was growing up in at home, but I was also really trying my best to lead a kind of double life. I didn't really share the kind of home life I had with my, in my social context at school and on the basketball courts. So they didn't know that you were studying 
at the weekends as most well. Of, most of them didn't really understand what was going on, and it was kind of a shock to many of my friends when senior year rolled around, and, and, and then I had suddenly, I had um, invitations to go to some schools that I don't think that they ever knew I was okay. preparing to go to. And now you said that you didn't have the kind of extended family that you might have had if there hadn't been um, good reasons for your father not to want to go to the segregated South and your mother not to want to hang out with a family that wasn't super happy about her being married right. to a black I should man. specify that my grandmother was the opposite. She was really not at all a racist, and she would come and visit us every okay. year. Yeah, she came to us, but I've only in retrospect realized that her husband could have come but never did and never called. You know, yeah. he was really absent, but she made the effort to come. So I right. knew my maternal grandmother. Right. But you knew her in your place. Yeah, that's right, not in her place. Right. And so you didn't let to know the people, I mean, her other grandchildren, for example, in knew a way that you would knew them from afar. You yeah. knew who they were. Not in a way that impacted my sense of myself. Right. They weren't, they weren't That's right. close in any way. So your circle, I mean, all young people have a circle of people that they define themselves by, even That's if they right. don't have family. Uh, so who, who were your, Mine I mean, was apart from your girlfriend, who, yeah. who were the others? So I had a best friend I called Charles in the book. Um, and he, his mother was Puerto Rican and his father uh, black American. And he was one of these kids that... Um, just extraordinarily smart, things came easy to him, really good looking, really popular. And somehow very early on he latched on to me and started coming home, because I lived much closer to school than he did, started coming home with me in the afternoons, saw my father, saw what my father had access to through all of these books and saw that there was some type of life of the mind that he hadn't seen elsewhere and said, I, I want to participate in that. He was like the opposite of my high school girlfriend, and so he started coming over the house every day, and so that helped me. We, the two of us studied every day from freshman year to, through senior year for our SATs and did extra prep work outside of our classes, and um, yeah, he ended up making a huge success of himself. He ended up, uh, he, he did a little bit worse on the SAT, went to a slightly lesser college, studied very hard, got straight A's, studied abroad at Oxford then went to the top law school in the country mm-hmm. and worked at one of the top investment banks, you know, and then, okay. you know, he just, he made a smashing success out of himself. And I think that his encounter with my father um, was transformative for him. So that was something that, that, that it was really, we shared, we were like brothers. But, but he was also, he, he was also, he was a code switcher and he was extraordinarily cool and most people didn't know that that's what he was doing either. Okay. Uh, were you code switching? Were you? I was trying my best. Trying to. I was trying my best to. <laughs> so my life depended. I felt like my social life depended. Okay. On yeah. And um, so you think you, you sort of had a sense that there was a way you were at home that just wasn't going to work. It didn't translate into what I felt uh, my peers uh, would value. Although in retrospect, I also want to say that perhaps I was projecting that on them, and perhaps they could have handled a lot more than I was willing to share with them. And I, and I really don't know. I right. felt as though I had to hide that. Right. And so did your friend. He did too, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so there was a shared judgment. Yeah. I mean, I have one memory of um, having done well on the, um, on like the SAT uh, 2 writing exam. I got a perfect score, and the principal wanted on the closed-circuit TV to, to honor me. And I got so afraid that... Uh, Everyone was going to tease me, and it was going to make me uncool. And 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 I and I went, and he did the thing, and everybody in homeroom watched it. And when I stepped out into the hallway, I braced myself for the teasing, but nothing ever came. No one even acknowledged it, one way or the other. It meant nothing okay. to anybody, okay. and that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Because had I had done something well on the basketball court, or had I even just had 
a really good pair of new tennis shoes, that would have registered much more with mm -hmm. everybody, but it meant nothing. So how many people from your class went to college? That I'm aware of? It depends. There are very different definitions of college, of course. Yes, um, yes. Well, how many of them stopped with high school? I think Would it have been quite half? a few. I mean, quite a few. I don't really know the numbers, but yeah. uh, some, some, my, for example, my, my girlfriend, she simply got pregnant and never, okay. and that was it. And there were, there were multiple students like that. Okay. And you, so what did the school think about this? I mean, surely the school must have had a view about, here you were, you and your friend, you were, yeah, the, the you're going to do were well. proud. Yeah, you the administrators were quite proud. Right. And some of them would ask my dad, you know, why is Thomas dating this girl and things like that, you know, and I would be very defensive about that. And my father was kind of um, delicately not trying to, you know, put too much pressure on me, but he was concerned as well. So by the time you go to Georgetown, you're distant, you've separated from, from... It took a year after being in college and coming home and, and realizing that she had gotten pregnant by, by a guy who was selling drugs in Newark, New Jersey, and she was going to move in with him. And she kind of, um, she kind of scolded me the first time. It was an awkward date the first time I was back on break, and she said, you know, those white have you bug and you're tripping, you know, it, what, what, what's happened to you? And I realized when I came home that uh, there was something that I realized I was able to um, express about myself and who I really was down at Georgetown that uh, I didn't want to kind of conceal anymore. Mm -hmm. And so we, we split. It was, it was super painful, but we split, and then I realized that that was absolutely kind of the best thing that could happen. So you're, you're at Georgetown. You're, uh, you've got a bunch of friends. Uh, who are they? And I mean, because yeah. you, you're arriving at Georgetown as a, as a young black student with a high, lots of high scores in academic stuff. You're there because you want to be, because um, you're intellectually engaged, academically excited. Who, who are you for, your, for the people who meet you? So I was living time? on a floor that was pretty diverse. Uh, one of my best friends was uh, Ghanaian um, from New Jersey. Um, and both of our roommates were white, and we lived across the hall from each other, and we kind of spent a lot of time together. All um, four of you? Uh, all four of us, but mostly me and uh, my Ghanaian friend, Henry. Um, and at first, I kind of, uh, I, I just didn't even, like, pay attention to I, I had nothing against the, my white um, dorm mates or anything like that, but I, I, I kind of moved through the world as though... Um, their reality didn't apply to mine and mine didn't apply to them. And I, and I kind of um, preemptively cut myself off from having any real intimacy with these, with these um, other students. And I don't know why. I mean, I, I, I really threw myself into, um, you know, the, the segregated tables in the cafeteria. Which, you know, college cafeterias often break down along identity. Sure. Um, and, I, and I often went over to Howard with my black friends on weekends and stuff and um, just thought that this larger white re reality was something that I swam in, but it wasn't had nothing to do with me. It was, I wasn't of it. And um, one night I was really ill in the, in the dormitory and, uh, and I was um, having an asthma attack and I went to take a shower in the middle of the night and I was coming back and there was one student on the floor uh, who was still awake and he was two doors down from mine and, I, and he invited me in to have some tea. He was listening to jazz and he was, he was a Jewish kid from Brooklyn uh, named Matt. And I realized that night that it was the first time that I had ever really talked to him. We'd lived next to each other for about six months and he was playing music that I'd never really paid attention to. My friends and I growing up, um, we kind of behaved as though black culture began in 
the 1970s and the Bronx uh, with hip-hop and that there was nothing that preceded it. We, none of us listened to jazz. None of us even really read um, many books from the Did Harlem Renaissance or anything like that. My, my dad uh, basically didn't have music on in the house except for every now and then when he was feeling good he played some James Brown. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but I had never really listened to jazz. And, and so then Matt and I became friends over jazz and he started... Um, introducing me to all these other uh, musicians that I started to love. And I realized that he was the first, uh, he was the first Jewish guy I'd ever met. You know, I, I had never been aware of knowing a Jewish guy before. And mm -hmm. so then there were, there were Indian guys on the floor. There were people from all over. And I gradually kind of just started realizing that my friend group was much more diverse than I had ever allowed myself to have it in the past and that I was um, feeling all the richer for that. So your Ghanaian friend, though, who was also from New Jersey, was also someone who might have had a more complicated relation to race than um, yeah. some people because he was connected with an African identity as opposed to 100% um, rooted in, in That's right. African I American mean, history. He definitely, um, in America, was made black, and his social reality would be um, legible to a lot of uh, other black Americans, but he had... Um, Linguistic traditions in his house, and and like he was he put on traditional clothes from time to time, and he his family his family was of modest means, but from time to time they did go back to this other place. They knew where they came from. Mm -hmm. They didn't have this kind of. Um, I think that he had a lot of self-esteem that came from being linked to this other culture. Um, all of his brothers approached school with a kind of not with um, the kind of cool pose culture that I think took down a lot of my classmates, but they approached it with the kind of um, tenacity of the immigrant, and all of his brothers uh, went on to become physicians and scientists and things like mm -hmm. this. Uh, and their family, in one generation, really um, became so, successful. Right. Your uh, talk about his sense of being rooted somewhere makes me want to just step back a moment sure. and ask uh, whether, what your parents, given that your parents took it for granted that you were black, what did they think you should know about black history? Oh, well, so my, I mean, my father did his best to get me to read James Baldwin, to, to read um, Letter from Birmingham Jail by Martin Luther King. I mean, to really understand um, a larger tradition. But he also, somewhat uh, in the way that you write about identity, he always believed that um, my identity didn't begin or end um, with the social reality of my blackness. So. Um, he uh, kind of had his life saved by being a fatherless black boy in Texas um, without anyone in his family having an education, but he stumbled upon um, Plato's dialogues at some point in his childhood, oh, wow. and he picked it up and he tried his best to read it. And it didn't make sense to him at first, but he was very early on aware that there was something out there that linked him with a, with, with a towering Greek mind um, and that, and that if he could access it, he could potentially access the wider world. And he would read books uh, by himself in his closet with a flashlight. Mm -hmm. And, his, and his, um, his family would say, what are you doing? You're going to get yourself in trouble. Mm -hmm. Don't read those books. Mm -hmm. but, but he, or very early on, I mean, Aesop's fables were, were huge for him. Um, so he always, he would give me, you know, Flaubert and things like this. He, he always had a sense that uh, you can see yourself in many different um, in many different places and in many different um, figures, and so that uh, identity is not just being black. So, um, you have gone through a phase of thinking that blackness is about sort of being about the cool pose, that kind mm -hmm. of 
I had a very narrow understanding of what blackness right. was. Even though your father and yeah. mother were offering I thought you. he was eccentric. Okay. And, um, and that comes with you to college, but then this experience of a more diverse uh, community of fellow And in students. college, it was the first time that I met um, black students from a variety of uh, socioeconomic um, backgrounds. So college was where um, I met the children of doctors for the first But black Americans, not just immigrants, you know, um, and I realized that the black experience was socially and economically a lot more diverse than I had ever known in my little corner of New Jersey. And through getting into jazz and through starting to read Baldwin and starting to read all these other um, writers more seriously and starting to look at black art, um, I began to wonder why my friends and I had such a narrow conception of, uh, of this really rich cultural tradition and why I thought that my father was somehow outside of this cultural tradition when in many ways he was just um, exemplifying it. Right, right. So uh, now you, you did write a, a book before this, and in that book you were talking in a way uh, about a sense of identity that had to do with this coolness, and then how you came to change your mind about that. Mm -hmm. So we, maybe we don't want to spend too long on this, but I mean, I'm just interested in how you think about how you got from... Um, the, the, as it were, your high school framing of these things through to the college one, through to the one that's in the book, which is slightly different again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I really grew up believing in the all-American dictum that a drop of black blood makes a person black, primarily because they can never be white, but also because I just accepted that there's something essential about uh, racial identity and that there are also more and less authentic ways of... Um, of enacting that identity. And so uh, my first book was a coming-of-age memoir of kind of beginning to question, not racial identity, but beginning to question the, the narrow frame that I um, came to see was being sold to my generation in the hip-hop era. And it was, a, you know, my father and I uh, had two very different experiences being black men in America. And I began to, you know, I wanted to write a critique of what I saw as some... Um, some self-sabotaging values and habits that, uh, that I certainly participated in and that the wider um, social milieu around me did, too. E.G., for example? Um, uh, for example, the, the kind of extraordinarily um, ungenerous way that we interacted with the opposite sex. You know, the way that um, um, male-female relations were also always kind of um, a form of getting over on the other, mm -hmm. domination. Um, and, you know, for example, that became something that I really regretted and I tried to deal with in the book. Okay. But also, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary emphasis on, uh, on, on material possessions and success as opposed to um, inner freedom and, 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 and the life of the mind. Um, not to say that hip-hop um, is some monolith where there aren't, you know, brilliant lyrics and, and, and a real quest for knowledge, but the mainstream kind of version that we all modeled our identities on was really a kind of... Um, kind of minstrelsy that, you know, would be really offensive to someone of my dad's generation, actually, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the book was a rejection of that, but it was not yet um, a deeper questioning of, of the racial construct itself. Right. That so came you, later through life, more life experience. So you were, you were at that point, you, what you're doing is um, taking your being black for granted, but right. fighting for a different conception of what it is That's right. to be black. And you're, uh, I mean, I presume that 
I, I didn't. I'm, I should have done the research and looked at the reviews, but I assume that there <laughs> there are people who didn't like that. That's right. <laughs> but surprisingly, <laughs> I did a lot of talks at historically black colleges yeah, and, and in, in communities, and surprisingly, a lot of uh, black readers, and many who were not necessarily going to college or going to elite colleges, agreed with the book. Yes. It was m more in elite spaces where the toughest criticism came, and people would say, well, you don't know, the uh, white liberals might say, you don't understand the black experience in America, but a lot of blacks came up to me and said, this resonates with right. me. I do and think that we're, we have agency, we're making, there are bad choices that go on in the community. And, and presumably, I mean, within hip-hop culture itself, there's a kind of, there is also an anti-sexist strand. There is. That, it's uh, just, it's uh, not the dominant strand. Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the most <laughs> lucrative strand. No. Uh, so in a way, the critique is, you could say, some of the critique, or, or maybe even a little bit of the critique of the materialism is also in parts of hip-hop. So Absolutely. There's way, always been that. There's always been that. Yeah. Sort of and, and I should stress, the book is not, um, it's not about music. It's not about, it's not, it's not saying jazz is better than hip-hop. Mm. I, I still listen to hip-hop. It's saying that, um, that hip-hop is a means of kind of spreading and glorifying and monetizing this secular religion that kind of impacts people's entire lives. Right. So you, you, we're, we're, um, we're getting you out of Georgetown. Um, you, you, you've got a, your first degree. Uh, you haven't traveled much yet. That's right. Just, I, so you're about to begin to be a little bit more of a world traveler, which presumably is also important in developing your yeah, sense absolutely. of who you are. Um, let's talk a bit about that. Where did you go? Why did you go? Who did you go with? What happened? Yeah. <laughs> um, I always struggled with um, the French requirement <laughs> in school. And the summer before I graduated, I, um, to finish my credits, I went and studied for two months in Tours uh, just to get the, the credits. And what happened was I ended up falling in love with this country. I mean, just the freedom to sit at a cafe, order a glass of wine. I mean, cliche stuff, just to have delicious bread. I, you know, I had never really been uh, very daring um, in my culinary pursuits uh, prior to that. I began to taste different things. They were good. I liked it. Um, and I came back from that experience and um, at Georgetown I began dating um, briefly a, a French exchange student. Um, and we had a really intense relationship for a short amount of time, but during that time she found me. I didn't know what to do. I, didn't, I hadn't taken the LSATs. I kind of wanted to take a year just working. And she found me a job teaching English in France the next year. Uh, by the time that that came around, we had broken up. But I said to myself, you know, I, I still, I've got this job, I've got this interest in this country now, and let me go and see what's out there. And so I lived in this uh, northern town called Lille on the, okay. on the border of Belgium, and it, um, it was rainy and gloomy, but I felt uh, a freedom I'd never felt before. I, I taught English for 10 hours a week. It was an extremely cheap town. I had just enough to pay my rent and to buy, uh, you know, a couple of meals and cook the rest, and I sat in cafes all day reading Proust. Mm. And cliche stuff, but really, really, mm. like, world-opening things, too, you know? And, and, I, and, I, and I, I wondered to myself, you know, I was keeping some notebooks. I said, can I be a writer? You know, maybe I can try this. And as my year came to an end, my father kind of told me, look, you know, you, you need to come back home and figure out what you're going to do. Um, so I took the GRE and... Um, didn't get into the program that I wanted and decided, you know what, I, I got to get a job. And I went and I, I was a paralegal for two years at a midtown 
corporate law firm, and I thought maybe I, I would do that, and then I'd go to law school. Um, and it was absolute misery. It was terrible. I, I've worked a 36-hour day. <laughs> I've come in on a Tuesday and left on a Thursday from the office. And I decided, you know, I had such bad experiences there that I decided, you know what, I need to try to, I need to actually try to be a writer. I think that's what I want to do, and I need to try to do that. And so I applied to NYU. To the and, writing program. Yeah, to the writing program, the cultural reporting and criticism program in the journalism school. And I got a fellowship, and it made it possible for me to go. And so then I, 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 I just approached that as though, um, with a kind of naivety, as though I had to come out of that with a book deal. You, the way you just told it, you, the first moment when you thought you might be a writer by, by vocation mm -hmm. was sitting in cafes in Lille, yeah. um, writing out what was happening to you. Yeah. Um, that, that sense of freedom that you talk about, I mean, that's a... a hesitate to point this out, but it's a sort of familiar trope right. in the writings of African-Americans about, about Europe. Uh, du Bois talks about this in his autobiographies about arriving, in his case, in, in Germany, of yeah. course, and just realizing for the first time that not everybody was reacting to him as a black person. That, That's right. Uh, and maybe Is that part of the freedom? That took me more years to realize or to, to, to fully be able to articulate, but one of my first experiences in Lille was um, I, I would often eat at kebab shops. Um, and I remember walking into a kebab shop one late night and the man speaking to me in Arabic. And I kind of looked at him and he <laughs> said, parla arab, parla arab, speak, speak Arabic. And I said, why? <laughs> and he said, why didn't your parents teach you your language? And I said, what do you mean? He said, what are you? What are your origins? You often get asked in France, what are your origins? Yes. And I said, my dad's from Texas and my mom's from California. And he said, You're, where are you from? Yes. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm black. And he said, he, he looked at me <laughs> with incredulity and he said, you're not black. Michael Jordan is black. And, and, and I really sat there and explained to him that, you know, the one drop rule and things like this. But I, I, that was the first time I realized that the way I think of myself is not necessarily, and it changes where I am, it's not necessarily what the society around me reflects back or right. interprets or sees. Right. So, so, and that happened in Lille. So that was that happened in Lille. It was a very, uh, it was a very diverse uh, yes. part of France, and 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 my phenotype looks more like the North African phenotype yes. there. And so, but that was my first kind of, that was the first time I'd ever been mistaken for something other than what I thought I was, or my identity. Um, so someone didn't um, accept my own self-definition, and it was, you know, it was it was also the first time that I realized that probably the most salient thing about me was my Americanness, not my. Not my racialness. Right. Again, that's another thing that I think. That yeah, and that's very. That's Baldwin writes Baldwin the best about, about this. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Wright too. In, um, that's right. In uh, in Black Power, Richard Wright. Um, so so here you are. You you're you're becoming a writer. You think at least you're you're getting the qualifications of a young writer. You're acquiring a, an MFA or a, a master's degree in, in journalism or whatever it is. Um, do you already know what you're going to write about? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. I, um, I was taking a course on polemical writing in my second semester. It's a three-semester program, so it's a little bit odd. Um, and the teacher's assignment, Professor Katie Royfe, uh, her assignment was just to write anything that you, you know, want to write about, but just take a position and argue it forcefully. And so I was listening to all this Nina Simone, and I was really reading a lot of Baldwin at that time. Um, and I was saying, you know why is this 
culture that I'm so immersed in right now is so much richer than what I thought I had access to when I was growing up. And so I wrote a, a piece that was arguing that um, um, black culture in the hip-hop era, the post-civil rights era, isn't black culture. It's, 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 it's black street culture. It's mm -hmm. been conflated with like a mm -hmm. street identity that is a very narrow aspect of black culture. Mm -hmm. And she read the assignment and she said, this is pretty good. I think this could actually be published somewhere. And um, the beautiful thing about going to these graduate programs is that your professor actually knows somebody that they can give you the right. email to. <laughs> and so I sent it to the New York Times, and they were interested. And then at some point, they said that the news hook is not fresh enough, so wait or some wait until there's some news event. And uh, and out of frustration, I just went on the I went home and I just sent it blind to the Washington Post on their website, and they and they took it. Mm -hmm. And it ran, and, and, and it generated a, an enormous amount of comments, both for and against. And I said, you know, I, I'd love to expand that argument because it was just about 800 words. And so... Uh, so that's how the book... So then my, 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 my professor introduced me to an agent, and I took a semester off of school, and, um, and, I, and I worked on a proposal. And by the time I came back to finish my degree, uh, I, I sold the book at auction. And I was naive enough to believe that's how writing <laughs> works. It'll happen you know? every time. But, but I just, I approached it as though I knew that I didn't have any family money or anything to lean back on. So I knew that I had to actually um, support myself by my writing. And so I, I really approached it as though I had no option, but I couldn't even begin freelancing. I had to have a book. Okay. So you have a contract yeah. and, and an outline so you know what the book's about. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, it's, and in fact, you have a published statement of, of the thesis. And that's all I have to my name. Book. Yeah. But, so you have to go somewhere and do this. That's right. So where do you go? So initially I went back to my apartment that I was sharing with, um, with my long-term girlfriend from college. Uh, we had a bit of time off when I was in France, but through college in my early 20s. Um, a woman who really taught me about the, the complexity of identity, too. She's um, a mixed uh, girl. Her mother's family comes from the north of Italy. And her father's family comes from Nigeria. And she grew up in uh, Inwood, above Washington Heights, around mostly Dominicans, looked Dominican, spoke Spanish fluently, and had this kind of identity that no one... She, her, I, the, what was projected on her was uh, a Latina identity. Uh, and so I just, she spoke Japanese, she had lived in Japan, and she just she, she identified as black. But my father's blackness was completely foreign to her, that southern variety of blackness. Mm -hmm. So she showed me that identities are really complex things, and she didn't even consider herself as having anything to do with um, um, southern Italians who mostly populated the parts right. of Brooklyn that we lived right. in. She thought that that was completely foreign. Yes. So I was living a with her. A widely shared view in Italy. Yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unbeknownst to non-Italians. Exactly. Yes. Um, so, you look, so she's doing her, living her life, yeah. uh, but you're living with her, and... And you're starting to write the thing. And I'm starting to write, and we're beginning to grow apart, and we began to break up. And a friend of mine allowed me to borrow his apartment in Paris, and I went back to Paris, and I felt free again, and I banged out, like, three chapters in, you know, in six weeks in Paris. I just felt energized. And so when I came back to New York, I no longer had my apartment with my girlfriend, and I, and I, and I had this, you know, amazing... Um, situation where you're paid up front for work that you'll complete a year later. And so I just, I, I just, without knowing anything about it, I just got on a plane and went down to Buenos Aires yes. uh, and rented an apartment for a few months and just worked like I've never worked in my life, you know? Yeah, you say that in the book, and mm -hmm. um, but you don't say very much about how... I mean, there are many... I would like to go and spend <laughs> three months in Buenos Aires, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, I mean, 
it's a rather bold thing to do. Especially considering I can't you, speak you a word speak of Spanish, Spanish. And you actually do need to. There's not yes. like going to Paris. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I guess there was an English-speaking community in, in There was, but, but I just kind of probably didn't want to hang out with them. You know? I just, uh, it, it was such a, I, you know, I was just obsessed with the literature of Borges and thought, okay. you know. So and was, that, was that really, in a way, it was, it, was, it was the literary I, Yeah, I was connection. either going to go to Mexico City because I was obsessed with Bolaño, or I was going to go okay. to Buenos Aires because of Borges. Had a friend who had been living in both places. You're a writer. <laughs> Writers do things for that kind of reason. <laughs> they go to places where they don't speak the language because there's a great writer who, yeah. who they admire who lived there. Uh, and you and that was you did most of the finishing the book. I did an enormous in, amount. I think in, I, yeah, I got through much of the book there. And you know, yeah. it was one of those situations where um, you just didn't have to worry. I mean, it was fraction of the price of living in Brooklyn, yeah. you know? It's th that's the true compensation of the writing life, is that you, you get paid in freedom and you can do it where you want to do it. Right, right. So, the, so then the book, book's done, uh, comes out, you get these reactions. How do you end up um, as a permanent Frenchman? <laughs> <laughs> you stumbled into that, stumbled too. Into that. Um, so when I was waiting for the book to come out, I was, um, I was not yet sure how to really make it as a magazine journalist. Uh, and I took a job uh, working for a French university, flying around the, uh, the United States, um, kind of taking meetings with, um, with, with high-achieving American high school students and saying, have you ever thought about going and studying at Sciences Po? They have a program in English now. Yes. Um, and it was a kind of a wonderful job. And I just traveled around. And I came to Paris a couple of times a year for that. And one time through these friends that I had been making from since when I graduated college, through when I was writing my book. Um, I, I met up with some friends at a bar, and one of them brought uh, my future wife along. And we just talked to each other for a couple of minutes, but kept in touch. And when she came to New York, uh, things moved from there. And before I knew it, I was proposing to her, and she moved to New York for, for a year. And then, and then uh, I, I think we quickly realized that she's a writer as well, and two writers would do better off in a social democracy than, than, <laughs> than in Brooklyn, okay. so we moved to yes, Paris. Yes. Okay, um, and now you're, from the point of view of an American, you're a black man marrying a white woman. That's right, and that was very much my point of view um, when I met her. And that's, in a way, part of what happens when you get to France is that you discover that that isn't the only way people could think about it. When I really began to live in France the second time, um, I was always struck that people didn't just accept as fact the one-drop logic that I thought was self-evident. So even before I had children, my wife is French, but I should say that, like my mother, she's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, fair-skinned. Um, and people would just ask, you know, why do you say you're black? Why don't you say that you're mixed? Or why don't you... Why aren't, there's many different ways you might describe yourself. Why is it just default black? I would explain to them the law of hypodescent, and then... They would basically say, okay, but I, I, I noticed there was a kind of resistance to just buying into that that I'd never noticed in the United States mm. before. Um, and ne Never? Never, not really. No, people, nobody at Georgetown? Had, no, had people didn't. I had never even met somebody who identified as biracial until I was at Georgetown. And, you know, you didn't even have the option of checking more than one box on the census until 2000. That's right. And my way of thought was very much aligned with what Barack Obama has very eloquently explained, which is that, you know, like, were I not the president, were I doing something wrong? You would say there's a black guy doing something wrong. The, the, the world sees me as black, I'm black. I just right. checked the African-American right. box. That was very much my reasoning, too. And I found that I didn't really get a lot of resistance to that in America. Right. Um, 
but you know, we got married in 2011, and by 2012, I was starting to realize that you know, if we have kids, my kids might like look pretty, look pretty light. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote this op-ed in the New York Times, uh, um, which in retrospect I think is kind of it was kind of glib, but I wrote this up at arguing that my future children would be black, period. Glib is fine for op-ed <laughs> <laughs> But I really believed it, or I was, I was writing that op-ed for an audience of one, and I was the, I was the audience. I was, convinc- I was arguing to myself publicly that your kids must be black, and it was a kind of moral obligation. And I was arguing it so often that I even kind of prevailed upon my wife to accept this view, even though it was very foreign to her European mindset. Um, and so she said, okay, you know, I'm going to have, I'm, I'm going to have black kids, you know, that, that, cool. And, 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 you know, I kind of put that aside and, and bought myself several more months of unexamined life. And by the time that we actually ended up in the delivery room, I can honestly say that I walked into the delivery room one person and left a completely different person. And it's not because I had white children. It's because the presence of my blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughter, child. it shattered my ability to believe in the fiction of race. It thrust that fiction into my consciousness for the first time in a way that even living with, with a white mom and a black dad couldn't. And do you think it would have been different if, if she just happened to have had a different throw of the genetic lottery and it had darker hair and It might have been different. Eyes? I think that it's the fact of knowing that she is one-fifth, you know, by 23andMe's logic, is one-fifth sub-Saharan African descended. And when we travel to visit friends in Sweden passes as a local there. Yeah. It's that absurdity that shattered my belief not in, in our situation, but made me realize that these categories don't explain anybody's um, full complexity, but they're just most visible on the margins. So um, you could have responded by saying, okay, I, I'm a black man with a white child. Right. Which is, that was insufficient, I realized. And then, so what gets, what completes the argument and what's the argument? I mean, where do we, where are you... Who are, who are you now? <laughs> so uh, who are you? What, what's the position you're arguing us to, to trying to persuade us to let you occupy? Sure. And trying to argue you to also perhaps join me in, yes, in yes. going to occupy. Yes. Um, well, everybody... Well, all right, let's, let's so hear it and then we can... This was not an overnight epiphany. I, I, my belief in the racial categories was deeply damaged. Um, and my way of working through questions is to write about them. And so I wrote an essay for the Virginia Quarterly Review called Black and Blue and Blonde that was really, um, it was much more about, it was questions, it was not answers. Um, And so I was wondering, what does it mean to change the race of a line of people? What does it mean to be the the decision maker in a a chain of decisions that that actually um, steers the train off of one track onto another track? And and, and I didn't know, but I, but th- that essay was grappling with this kind of um, fear I was feeling. I felt like uh, some kind of like modern Oedipus who had metaphorically slept with his white mother and slayed his black dad. I was wondering, what is the moral implication of that? Um, what would it mean to have um, 20, 30 years down the line children that could, and grandchildren that could potentially just toss off the comment among a room full of white people that, oh, I had black ancestry once upon a time. Isn't that funny? The way that some of my classmates used to talk about having Cherokee blood or something like that, you know, where it has no emotional significance to them. It's a, it's a kind of funny quirk. And also no cost. And no cost. 
So I, that essay was, was grappling with those questions. And again, I realized that I didn't have enough space in that essay and I wanted to write a book, but I didn't know where, where the book would conclude. I wasn't having an argument yet. Um, and I started reading a lot and thinking a lot, and I was reading Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields, which um, makes the brilliant argument that race functions in our society the way that witchcraft functioned in previous societies where there's no such thing as witches, but you can die at the stake if you're perceived to be a witch. Yes. Um, and that's the paradox of racism. And that racism creates race, not the other way around. That became a very fundamental insight uh, through reading the Field Sisters. Can I ask you a question? Because I mean, I, I would have thought of that as a thought that you could have had if you'd been to the right classes at Georgetown. That's right, but I, I was, I was, Hegel wasn't making those points. I was studying, uh, I was studying German idealism and okay, things like this, right. and existentialism. So you, right. But, uh, because that seems to me, in a way... I could that, have approached that, uh, but... I, I, I mean, there's been an argument in African-American intellectual that's right. life for a long time about that question of, sort of that's the right. priority of racism and race. And even if I had paid more attention to Baldwin, he's making those points, and Albert Murray is making those yes, points, and Ralph Ellison is making those points. And I went back and reread them, and I saw these points already. Uh, these arguments were already there. But you had, but uh, I hadn't, you had a, a new feelings about it because you had, that's not right. because you had a daughter, and this is not a theoretical... It became outside the realm of abstraction to yes, me. It became very specific concrete. to me. Yes. And I read Paul Gilroy's Against Race, which I thought was astonishing. Um, but none of that still got me to the point of, of, of really understanding how I would um, finish this book that was searching until I profiled in 2018 the artist, uh, the conceptual artist and philosopher Adrian Piper, um, who... Who, by the way, I interviewed for the Village Voice... Did you, really, you, you're, uh, you, beat, you? You beat me to all of this. <laughs> no, I, no, no, no. You no, did, no. though. No, no. But so I was very interested to see that because, and in fact, um, the piece, uh, the, the transition article that you mm -hmm. quote mm -hmm. was, was edited by my husband. Oh, uh, wow, really? Uh, who who uh, yeah. was one of the, who, Finn, and, yeah. who persuaded her to write it because I'm not sure she was going to. It's an absolutely brilliant, passing for black, passing yes, for white. Yes, yes and it's it got great images in it, too. Yes. Yes. It was, um, I th it was an astonishing piece for me yes, to read. Adrian yes. Piper is a woman who um, had black ancestry on both sides of her family, but her father was so light that he could pass in the military, and he received two birth certificates uh, in his infancy. The first said he was white, and the second said he was an octoroon mm -hmm. uh, on his mother's insistence that he wouldn't have a white birth certificate. But many people didn't know what to make out of Adrian. Um, her whole life, uh, blacks questioned her blackness, and whites could get very enraged when they found out that she was black and feel that she had tricked them um, in elite spaces like Harvard's philosophy right. department. So she's, she's a graduate student at Harvard. Exactly. In philosophy. And, and Quine comes up to her and says, you're about as black as I am. And yeah. this shatters her idea of, you know, of Harvard as being a place yes. uh, where these kind of questions wouldn't interfere with the life of the mind. Um, but, you know, in 2012, she did this art gesture. She publicly retired from being black. Yes. And when I read that, I was just astonished by this, and I wanted to write about her, and she wasn't interested in doing much press, but after about two months of going back and forth in emails and having increasingly um, interesting conversations with her, I went and I, and I met her twice in Berlin, and we had these long conversations. And something in talking to her opened up. It released something in me, and... She gave me kind of, uh, she wouldn't say that she gave me permission, but her example gave me permission to say that, you know what, I want to step out of this kind of perverse all-American skin game. 
that um, operates on this idea that there's a white-black binary that's real, and that monolithic whiteness that lumps Jews, sometimes even Arabs, Anglo-Saxons, Italians, together as opposed to, 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 to this permanent black underclass. I want to step out of that um, system, and I want to question it, and I want my children to be the type of people that subvert that, that don't just easily blend into monolithic whiteness. And um, I said to her when we were having dinner, but the thing that gives me pause and that, that kind of scares me is I think that maybe my children won't have this kind of ancestral pain and guilt that uh, I think attaches me to a community, and I'm wondering that that's a form of disloyalty if they were to lose that. And she said, look, <laughs> if, they don't have, if they don't have to be burdened by guilt, why would you want to burden them by guilt? They can be loyal, they can be respectful, they can know who they are, where they come from, but isn't the point of, of struggle to at some day at some point, not have to struggle anymore. Right. I'd never heard anybody ever say that. I'd never had a conversation where, where somebody just so straightforwardly questioned something that I assumed to be a necessity. But you're asking, uh, so you're saying, you're retiring from blackness. There's a, there's a retirement home somewhere for where you and Adrian Piper are retiring. Well, I would say not just from blackness, but from race. From yeah. Retiring from race. But what I was going to say, that means that... Um, you're also trying to, to you're trying to raise your kids, not as white kids. That's absolutely right. It would be uh, a tragedy if they. So, um, and I guess the we have a, like five minutes left. But but uh, so the the real practical challenge is, uh, what's possible for you and what's possible for your now two children, uh, and maybe your uh, your brother and his half Russian mm -hmm. children. Um, is going to depend on what other people do. You can't, you can't do this on your own. So, you're, in other words, the book is an appeal to the rest of That's us right. in a way to say, um, uh, at the very minimum, uh, uh, don't require me and my children to be in this game. But in a way, you're suggesting that all of us would be better off if we left the game of race. If I think that our society would be much healthier if we did. And the, re the response, of course, is going to be from some people that... Uh, there's a risk there of leaving behind uh, the worst-off uh, black right, people yeah. who who need blackness as as the one thing they've got uh, to create solidarity and resistance to what is still a pretty racist uh, society and maybe a pretty racist world. I don't know. Uh, what what's your? I mean, so yeah, sure. I mean, and um, frankly, most of the people who people are thinking about when they think that that's going to be a useful thing that you're denying them, most of them aren't going to read your book. They're not, they're not in the business right. of making this kind of argument or responding to this kind of argument. So I guess somebody's going to have to make it for them. <laughs> um, or, um, I mean, so what's your view about that? What's your sense of um, the best case, as it were, for the other side? I, sure. I'm a philosopher. I like to know what the best case is for the opposition. Sure. So... I think that Americans do race very sloppily and very badly. Oftentimes when we're talking about race, we're really talking about ethnicity and class and culture and things like this. I don't think that uh, subverting and, and, um, and resisting racial categorization means that you have to lose touch with your community or with the cultural traditions that matter to you. Um, so that's off, that's off the bat. I think that black people and people rendered non-white in this society have uh, the least incentive uh, out there to uphold the racecraft that keeps the whole thing going. Right. Um, this book is very much, uh, I think oftentimes it gets misconstrued as an argument against blackness. This book is very much an appeal for whites who are necessary and this. It can't happen without 
um, sufficient numbers of, 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 of well-meaning white people um, subverting their own whiteness and rejecting their own whiteness, understanding how their race has been made, and then achieving a perspective that resists that, um, that racial identity. Right. So it's, it's, it's an appeal to whites to reject race. And how, uh, in practice, are they to do that? So there's, there's, I think there's a few ways. One of the things you can do right off the bat would be to use, uh, to treat language as though it really matters. I think that um, many of us think that language simply describes reality, but language actually creates reality. The word choices we make matter, and they create the world that we inhabit. So you might stop saying that you're white, and you might get a much more specific conception of who you are, where your mother's family comes from, where your father's family comes from. You might take seriously some genealogical research. You, you, you might actually do some DNA research, and most people that dig far enough will find things that contradict their um, simplistic conception of themselves, and, 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 and you might incorporate that into your idea of who you are. On one hand, have a hyper-specific sense of yourself, and on the other hand, you might actually just have a much more universal sense of yourself and say, racially, I'm a member of the human race. People will laugh at you when you say that, but it's actually the most, it's, it's the most accurate way you could describe yourself. Mm. Yes. I'm not sure everybody will laugh at you. I mean, it seems to me that there is... I mean, part of, you mentioned that when you made the argument against certain features of hip-hop culture, it turned out that there were... African-Americans right. African who, who were going to go along for the ride. I suspect that, I'm hoping, I hope that you're finding that there are people um, everywhere. There who, are, yeah, who, there are. Who, who want to do this. And um, I'm just, um, the challenge, I think, is, is that racial identities, like all identities, um, are made by all of us together. That's right. And so it's, it's going to be a team effort. And while you don't have to bring everybody along for it to work, we have to bring an awful lot of people. That's along. right. You need sufficient numbers for norms to change, but yeah. norms can and do change. Yes. And I don't think that you can actually just stumble by accident to, into a better future that you can't first envision. Right. So I think there's an element of imaginative labor that does have to happen before when it seems like a long shot. I mean, James Baldwin, a quote that really means a lot to me is he said that um, we have to we have to defeat the racial delusion. I'm paraphrasing him. He said that's I'm asking the impossible, but we owe our children nothing less than the impossible. Right. And race is a delusion, and we have to defeat all delusions. And you're, um, you're going back to France? On Saturday. On Saturday. I am, yeah, I'm going back shortly. Uh, that's home now? That's home for now. And, and what's the next book? That's a good question. Um, it's not going to be another memoir. I think my father's going to be really <laughs> upset if I, if, I, if, I, if I do a third memoir before the age of 40. So... So it's a novel, perhaps? Uh, I have a novel I mean, that you I said, You said yeah, you were working on a novel, you say um, in the book. And it didn't come together the way I want. So maybe, maybe I'll try a new novel, or what I think I might want to do is step outside of myself and, and, and get into some reporting. Terrific. Well, we've uh, stepped out of our time, so <laughs> we're at the end of the time available. So it's been very good talking to you. And um, I wish you all the best with this book and with the project of uh, escaping, helping us all, perhaps, to escape from race. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Good.